Hello and welcome to He's Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we're talking about 20th Century, which is a sort of prototypical screwball comedy directed by Howard Hawks from 1934, just before the Hayes Code was sort of strictly enforced. Yes. Um, you hadn't seen this before, neither had I. I thought I'd seen it. It's one of those films that I was sure I'd seen it, but actually it turned out that I hadn't. I mean, you know, I kind of in my head, I must have confused it with, you know, other great Carol Lombard screwballs of the 30s, really. Um, yeah. This is the film that kind of launched her, from what I understand. Yeah, she was a star then. I mean, I've seen her starring... Uh, she was in silent films, and I've seen her in some very, very early ones. Well, she's she's wonderful, right? So um, I understand that this is the film that launched her as a comedian, yeah? Right. right. Um, so, and definitely... Uh, uh, she would achieve a completely different level of stardom. I mean, it's very interesting to see just the title of the film because obviously it has John Barrymore in 20th Century and then Carol Lombard under the title, right? So you get a sense of what her ranking was. But she was nonetheless quite established by then, yeah? Right. So um, we watched this because this was uh, requested by Celia, friend of the podcast who's been mentioned many, many times before. Um, she's, She's mentioned it to me a number of times saying it's one of her favourite films and like she can't she can't be friends with anyone who doesn't like it and so on and so forth. She's very much like that, you know. So are you now going to continue to be friends? <laughs> you know, I quite liked it. Uh, uh. I quite liked it. Um I don't think I, I I mean I probably didn't like it enough for her. Um but we can probably continue to still be friends. She really loves screwballs, right? And I think what she loves about them is is the kind of uh inversion of sort of sexual of gender dynamics, you know, men kind of uh, getting their egos pricked, uh-huh. women having kind of much higher status, being kind of anarchic. She said to me before, yes. you know, Carol Lombard has has elements of that in this. Although I would take issue with with the idea that there's male ego pricking to the extent that you see in other screwballs. Um, what I really liked about this, the thing I like most of all, is the performances, the way they draw out. Um, kind of subtleties in the dialogue, which is also brilliant. That you, particularly the two assistants played by Walter Connolly and Roscoe Carnes, mm. who I may have seen things before, but they're they're just character actors here. They have these little lines of dialogue that are that are funny to begin with, and then the actors bring out subtleties in them through gestures, through pauses, especially um, Walter Connolly who plays. Excuse me, especially Roscoe Carnes, who plays Owen, who's a drunk. Mm. I think it's wonderful. Mm. So all the kind of bits of business that go on during scenes and in between kind of important bits of plot and dialogue, those are the things I think really make this film come alive. Mm. That's what I love. Let's start with the plot. Yeah, Why don't you tell us the plot? It's very straightforward. Carol Lombard is this uh, actress, well, actually, she's a model, uh, Mildred Plotka, who... She's a lingerie model. (laughs) Mildred Plotka. Yes. (laughs) And she's kind of she's kind of basically in the company, uh, in an acting company, uh, run by John Barrymore. Uh, Oscar Jaffe is his character's name, who is uh, pompous and full of himself, and he loves the theatre and all this kind of stuff. And he basically picks her out of nowhere, gives her a new name, Lily Garland, and then transforms her into 
uh, an actress, a star. A Bernhard. <laughs> yes, that's right. Through essentially kind of abuse and talking down to her, there's this wonderful bit of business at the start about putting a drawing on the ground, chalk marks to say you you walk here, and then in the next line of dialogue you walk here and here and here, and you know then you cut and the the floor is covered in chalk. It's wonderful. Yes. But he manages to successfully transform into a star. You cut to three years later, and she's very, very unhappy. Um, and she's kind of acting out and, and starting to stand up for herself against the uh, way she's treated by him. And she essentially leaves to go to Hollywood. And the kind of back half of the film, then, is a chance encounter between the two of them, having split up for some time now, on a train called the 20th Century that runs from Chicago to New York. And it's a kind of there's a kind of chamber play aspect to the whole second half of the film, really, where you just know that it's all going to kick off and it becomes a real farce, almost. Not almost. It is a farce. Yeah. yeah. It's a farce through and through. Um, and I loved it. I, I was watching it yesterday and I was laughing out loud uh, at several times and catching me completely by surprise. And actually, I think anybody who's interested in acting really should see John Barrymore in this. Mm. Because, you know, it's such an extraordinary performance. It's, it's, it's farcical. He's playing farce, you know. Uh, but he does all these double takes, you know, all these. I mean, you know, sometimes on somebody else's line, he'll just pop his eyes that, you know, he can't believe what he's saying. And it's so funny, mm. right? So, so it's, it's, he's getting laughs where there aren't any in the dialogue, actually, just through his reaction. Um, and it's just absolutely brilliant, you know, the, the way that he goes uh, with it, really. Was he known for comedy? Well, he was considered the greatest actor of his day, right? He was already legendary. This film is drawing on one of his previous great successes, which was Svengali. A couple of years earlier, there had been a film called The Royal Family of Broadway, uh, which he and his brother and sister Lionel and Ethel Barrymore sued because it was so clearly based on the on them. Yeah, mm. they were like a theatrical dynasty. Yeah, people who'd been kind of actors since the nineteenth century, and you know, in this particular case, all three brothers were famous, like super famous. Yeah, uh, and John Barrymore was the most famous as all of all, right? Partly because of his looks. He also had been like the greatest Hamlet of his day. You know, he turned Hamlet into a, a big Broadway success, right? So we're already looking at him in, you know, kind of way past middle age. He'd already, he was already having problems with drunkenness and, you know, and stuff like that. So, um, you know, his career would deteriorate kind of quite badly from here until he died in, in I think, 41 or something like that, early 40s. But you know, he was recognized as a great actor with a huge range, like from Shakespeare to, in this case, farce. Right. I love Barrymore. I think it, it's, it's kind of genius acting. Actually, you know, it's very interesting because I was watching The Devil's Disciple. I'm going through a Burt Lancaster kick. I'm seeing all the films in alphabetical order. <laughs> I'm very impressed that someone like Burt Lancaster, who's not a genius actor, but nonetheless, you know, he's got this American vitality and energy and daring. So, you know, I was noticing that in the 50s or the late, from the late 40s to the late 50s, he'd done Arthur Miller, Inge, uh, Tennessee Williams, Terence, is it Rafferty, uh, the British playwright? 
I mean, he done all the great dramatists of his day, right? And in this film, The Devil's Disciple, it's got Laurence Olivier. So it stars Burt Lancaster, Kirk Douglas, and Laurence Olivier. And both, you know, Kirk Douglas is fantastic, right? He gives this great flamboyant, charismatic, you know, film performance. Uh, Burt Lancaster plays a minister who then becomes a man of action. So his role is more physical, really, and it plays on his star persona. But Laurence Olivier, they had gone to a great deal of trouble to get Laurence Olivier because he was universally acknowledged to be the greatest actor of his day. And he is just awful. <laughs> he's just awful, right? Like, you know, he's a really busy, florid actor, right? So, you know, he gives like, he has one line and he gives it 20, you know, different kind mm. of facial expressions. And, you know, every line is thought through. So every word is given, you know, a different intonation, right? And, you know, to me, he seems awful, you know, and particularly in relation to, you know, these movie stars that were looked down upon, but that actually on film are much greater actors than he is mm. on the evidence of this one film. The extraordinary thing about Barrymore is, you know, he's giving a very theatrical performance, a really over-the-top performance. It is meant to be farcical, and yet it's great, yeah? And it's great because it's also kind of un unafraid, yeah? Mm. Like, kind of, you know, he's not afraid of making a fool of himself. He is going over the top. But then he does, it's a measured performance, right? You know, the, so... I mean, there's a little bit where he's talking to his manager, right? And he says something, the manager says, I've already talked to, I don't know, Mildred, whatever her name is, for the part, yeah, that that Lily Garland is, uh, has for the moment. And, you know, he does this thing with his eyes, right, in the middle of the other man talking. It's just so funny, right? So, uh, you know, kind of all of those tricks of the trade, yeah, kind of all of the double takes. You know, he's not afraid to do clownish bits, right? Like, so yesterday I circulated a gif of him. He's in disguise because he's got no money and he's got to take a train. So, and the police are after him. So he, he, he's in disguise. And then he goes into the suite of the 20th century, you know, and then he's thinking and he just touches his nose. <laughs> and it goes long. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. And, you know, the way that he pretends to be unaware of what he's doing. It's just so funny. It's such a such a funny bit of clownish business. He's extremely good, and he's incredible. He's very inventive, and as you say, unafraid. And I think it's also a very generous role to have been given, you know, because the kind of the, yeah. the central joke in his character is that he is overacting more than anyone. But his character looks down on acting. Basically, he says, "Oh God, imagine me an actor." He says when he takes that disguise off. You know, lowered to this, but of course he is overdoing it more than anybody else, and and that's and also and it's the way he speaks as well. He speaks in a in a, a very purple kind of prose sort of. Um, yes. I, I, can't, I can't recall any of the lines of dialogue, but they are they are as florid as you might you know imagine them to be. Um, He's brilliant. I wish I could remember the lines of dialogue. Actually, you know, and this is where I think I should see it again because they are brilliant. You know, and actually, the, the what I really love about this film which I think is very 30s, yeah? Because it's really hard-boiled as well, yeah? It's like, you know, kind of everybody's a crook or on the make or, you know, you're fired, you're hired, you're, <laughs> you're on the street, but I need you, <laughs> right? Like, you know, so there's a real hard-boiled 
element to it. And actually, there's what I also love is the intelligence, you know, and this is in comparison to our moment where, you know, I think, you know, people are so proud of being stupid, <laughs> right? Well, this is a film that delights in being smart, you know, that pokes fun at everything. Yeah. yeah. And actually, part of poking fun at everything is also thinking you're smarter than they are and superior to, they, to the, you know, they, what they are. But also this assumption that the audience is just as smart as you are. Yeah, that's something that I think actually throughout Screwball is something that I really like. The, the, the idea that you as an audience member are expected to keep up. You know? Yes. I, I, that's, and that's something that this film has. Everybody talks fast. Everybody talks smart. You know, everybody's on the make. It's very unsentimental about people, right? It's very unsentimental about love. Oh, yeah. You know, it's very, it's very unsentimental about friendships, you know? Uh, like, you know, everybody's on the make. You, everybody's using somebody. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's a hard look at people, you know? But also, it's kind of affectionate and endearing and unafraid. I mean, can you imagine a scene now where, um, you know, two things stand out, right? The guy who's escaped from the asylum, who's putting up all those posters of Jesus saves or what is it? Repent now. Uh, Repent. (laughs) You know, you'd have all the religious right on your ass in a moment, right? (laughs) You know, and they start campaigns again. Well, they don't care. They don't give a shit, right? So, yeah, just to poke fun and actually... You know, the person is is meant to be, in a way, kind of quite endearing. So, you know, kind of you're not meant to hate the person who's putting up no, all no. those posters, you know. But nonetheless, it's a fantastic gag, right? It's a fantastic gag that runs throughout that's aimed at a particular group that's seen as unwashed and uneducated and unthinking, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I and arrogance I above that. their station as well. That's the kind of thing about the, the stickers, isn't it? Going on, going on yeah. board the train, assuming to tell people their business. You know. Yes. Yeah. So and the way that that's used repeatedly. So you think the joke is dead, you know, and then somebody will turn their back, and the sticker will be on their back, and you laugh again. <laughs> so I loved all of that. Um, um, how well do you think it fits in to to other screwballs? Um, I'm not sure because all the screwballs that I can remember and love best all have a woman at the center, mm. and the center here is very much John Barrymore. Exactly. Uh, so. Um, I also think it's interesting that at the end of this, he wins, really. That's or certainly the way I see it. You know, he ends up tricking her into signing that contract, and then he ends up with her yes. back, back under his thumb. But she, she now knows more, and she's kind of wiser to it, but she ends up having been sort of desperate and um, uh, subjugated by him again, um, which is not something I would associate with, with Screwball generally. You know, generally you would probably see the man win out less. Well, but the thing is that the man wins out less. But when you were saying that he isn't pricked, I think he is, you know, because that whole scene at the end is he needs her. True. Yeah, he's completely destroyed, you know, without her. He's got no other hope than, you know, for her to join his play. 
right? So, you know, all his ideas of himself and so on, like, that, you know, they've, they finally changed. He recognizes his need for her. Uh, so I think an equality is restored in something that starts as very unequal. She's Mildred Plotka, the lingerie model. He's the great famous wizard of Broadway. Mm. By the end, they are equal. I would agree with that, apart from the point that a- after you get off the train and you have that final scene back in the theatre and he reverts to his old ways of the way you're talking yes. down to her, like that to me says... The equality of, yet he realises that he needs her and that's why he begs and tricks her, um, has, now that he's sort of won that battle, he's able to, you know, go back to the way he was. So that equality is disrupted again. I don't see it that way, because at the beginning, she's a lingerie model and he's this Bengali, right? At the end, he's the director and she's a temperamental actress wearing furs who starts fighting with him from the very beginning. Mm. So actually, you know, they start fighting. That's, yeah. Yeah. So it's not that I'm telling you what to do, where to walk, how to talk. I'm going to put a, a, a pin cushion up your bum <laughs> to get you to scream properly. It's not like that at all. No, sure. Right? So so I think there has been a change. Though I agree with you that the uh, Carol Lombard character is not the central character. And it's not even like in some of the other screwballs uh, that I love, like it happened one night where there's a real equality. Yeah, it's mm. a real kind of, you know, it revolves around the couple, right? Uh, this is really more about about John Barrymore. Uh, yeah, and the part that she plays in his life as opposed to the parts yeah. they play in each so, other's lives. you know, she's extraordinary, I think, because, I mean, she's not as good as he is in terms of, lines, line readings, inflections. But, you know, she's so game. Yeah, she's, <laughs> yeah. it's hard to imagine a major star of the period just giving herself up to this silliness like that, right? She goes in wholeheartedly into everything. And of course, she has to be one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen, right? And there's a moment where she's wearing that gold lame dress mm. to go out with her hair frizzed up and wearing a bandana. That has to be one of the most glamorous images, really. Yeah, it's kind of... it's So she makes a kind of impact visually, yeah, uh, that he doesn't. And that brings a kind of an equality to them as well, yeah? Yeah. So, you know, he's kind of... He's, he's brilliant at acting it out. She's just like a magical presence, really, like, you know, kind of almost glowing on screen, I think. You know, particularly with with some of those outfits, who I must check who designed them, actually. You know, kind of, the, the gold lame one looked like a Travis Banton, but I'm not sure. Can we check to see who designed those dresses? Because they were amazing. I'll have a quick look for you. Um, there'll be information on IMDb, I'm sure. Give me a second. Costume design by Robert Calloch. K-A-L-L-O-C-H. Brackets, gowns, brackets, uncredited. That's what IMDb has. Right, okay. Fine. They um, were fantastic. Um, I don't know what else. Maybe I could just have a quick look. What else he... Uh, yes, he's done fucking everything. He's Although he does seem to be credited all the time as Calloch, comma, gowns. He's a gowns guy. It right, seems. okay. On every film. Um, so there's that. Okay. He's, easy gowns. I don't know him, really. Easy gowns here, right? Um, I had... I. I it's probably more of a 
a problem with me than a problem with the film, that I started to kind of fall out of love with it when the film developed into making uh, Barrymore and Lombard the same person. That's the kind of central conceit is, is she turns out to be as bad as him. And they're kind of as objectionable as each other, and that's why they're perfect for each other. That's the, you know, ultimately that's the resolution. Really, um, he makes her into one of him, and then they need each other. Um, because th- there are, I suppose, there are sort of three central setups, three acts. Really, there's the there's the um, rehearsal at the start where he discovers her and 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 starts to make her who she is, and then there's three years later where she is rejecting that and then there's the whole train sequence and in that second act i was i, I really liked her i was 100% with her because i thought she is like there's this thing about it's it's maybe it's not stated but it's very heavily implied that the two of them have been in a sexual relationship as well as an actor uh, as well as a, a director actor relationship in this time well i mean you get the sense they've been living together for 3 years i mean that's exactly. why it's pre code they've been living in sin <laughs> yeah yeah um, I mean, that seemed very clear to me, um, and there's this thing about like she she says I'm gonna I'm gonna go out to the Ritz or the Mayfair Club. It'll be the first good time I've had in three years, and that you know there's an implication there, and there's a whole aspect to her there which is um, which is about not taking any more of this bullshit, any more of this abuse, and yes. when he comes in. He just kind of storms his way in, and they and they have an argument. He is not only acting over dramatic as he normally does, but he is sort of threatening her with emotional blackmail. This thing about jumping out the window and oh, what a victim yeah. I am. And the moment that she goes, "Fuck you! I'm not having any of that. I don't believe a word of it. Jump out the window if you want. I know you won't." I'm like going, "Yes, exactly. You are the fucking best, right? I love this woman." <laughs> you know. And so when you get to the train and she's had this situation in Hollywood where she thinks so much of herself now and she's become as bad as him I started to fall out of love with the film really and it's you know yeah. and it's like it, I can I can only put it down to wanting the character to be different to what she turns out to be but I think but I do think that it's not just that I wanted it to be different but that in the conceit of those two turning out to be as awful as each other. The film wants to be charming about it. It wants it to be charming, and I didn't find it charming. So I think then I think it maybe yeah. fails for me there. Oh, you see, I found it charming because the whole film is poking fun at the theater and theatrical types, hmm. right? And they are extreme versions of those theatrical types, and it is meant to be a farce. It's not meant to be like realistic, you know, in that respect. So actually, it's true that they have almost, you know no redeeming features except their talent. Hmm. (laughs) I mean, the film begins by showing you that they're egomaniacs, right? Like the very first image that you see in the film is, you know, uh, what's his name? Jaffe. Jaffe, yeah. His name's on that poster outside the theatre like eight times. Yeah. Jaffe presents, Jaffe directs, Jaffe, the great Jaffe. (laughs) So like... But the thing is, the the joke about that is on him from the start, as you say. It becomes who she is. And yes. I think, and I think that in in doing that, the film wants them to play, or wants that to play as charming. I think, Char- yeah, charming is probably the best word because it, it can't possibly play as appealing because you can't like these people. But I think he, I think it wants you to get more fun out of their their play off each other as than than I did. It's poking fun at them, 
Yeah. Right. So, you know, of course, she becomes like him because she becomes a big star and she becomes completely obsessed and whatever, you know, and so on and so forth. And, you know, but uh, I think you're meant to find that you are meant to find that charming and endearing. Right. Because it's people's idea of the theater that is being made fun of. I mean, you're not saying these are ideal people. You know, you're saying this is theater. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not for a minute saying I think these are supposed to be ideal people or I want them to be anything like that. Not at all. Like, I like I get the joke. I just think, for me, it, in that second half, it fails for me. You know, I think it's aiming for something that I didn't quite feel. Um, that's all. I loved it. I loved it. And um, because also those moments that you're describing are, you know, the moment, I mean, it has moments of both verbal brilliance and acting brilliance and you know a stringent social commentary uh you know the thing with the actors who have you know performed in the what is it the oberau whatever the theatrical yeah, yeah the, the the passion play <laughs> i mean it's so funny <laughs> they're stuck in america and actually the idea of you know her offering her th this great role that he's partly making up, you know, mm. and it's Mary Magdalene who you know is like the greatest whore in history. <laughs> yeah. That's how I see you. <laughs> you <know>? yeah. it's <laughs> true. I mean, it's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I found it funny. But the thing is, like I say, I, for me, it, it is about the business in between the main thrust of what's going on. That's what I found really funny. Like I say, those two assistant characters who I picked, pointed out at the start, Owen and uh, Oliver, I think one of the reasons that I like them so much is that they are the kind of... They're, they're the wink to the audience that, oh my God, my boss is insufferable. You know? Yes. Like, and, and, cause, and because I find him equally insufferable, I'm with them. You know? So every yeah, yeah, yeah. every moment of of their being tired of what they have to put up with is a moment of joy for me. <laughs> yeah, but that's, I think, also... So, you see, I agree with you, but I would value that differently. Okay. Because, actually, I think that's part of the genius of the film. Yeah, because at the heart of this film, at the very centre, you have two people that in your real life you wouldn't put up with for a second. They are both insufferable, right? Like, yeah. yeah. And actually, this is also part of John Barrymore's genius as an actor because he knows he's playing someone insufferable, right? Like, you know, he's making you laugh at him, right? Yeah. So the whole film is about these complete egomaniacs, right? You know, that you're, you're, you're not meant to like. Yeah, you're meant to laugh at them, right? And the actors know that and they give themselves entirely to be laughed at. Right, so it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I do still think the film wants you to get something slightly different out of them. It, it definitely wants you to get that out of them. I mean, don't get me wrong; like they are, they are pompous and they're to be laughed at. But I did still feel the film was asking me to feel something in addition to that, which I didn't. But I, maybe, maybe I'm reading something into it that that is not there really. Um, the film is very. Uh, interesting to look at because it's written by Ben Hecht and Charlie MacArthur, right, who were newspaper men. Uh, and in fact, their big famous success was the front page, uh, which they then kind of redid as His Girl Friday. So you and you can see similarities in that quickness, that's that intelligence, that, you know, lack of sentimentality in all of those three yeah mm. works really 
Uh, and of course, again, you know, His Girl Friday is one of the, one of the great um, kind of screwballs as well. I prefer that to this. Um, so, you know, I kind of, I also wouldn't rank this as one of the great, the greatest screwballs. I mean, you know, I have other preferences. Uh, but actually, I really like the harshness of this one, <laughs> you know, because if you see some of the others, like The Awful Truth or what they called like comedies of remarriage, mm. you know, they're intelligent, but they're also romantic, right? And characters are brought together, you know, in a different way. This is kind of heartless. Uh, yeah, right? yeah. And it remains heartless throughout. <laughs> and I like that about it. Yeah, know? I agree with that. That's the end of the truth. <laughs> The last thing I wanted to mention is that is maybe lost on us, right? Because, you know, do you have any idea what the 20th century was? Yeah, well, I, so I know that it was, like I say, this kind of luxury train liner, I suppose, that went between Chicago and New York. But as to what it signified, I suppose, well, luxury. Yeah, but it's important to underline because that's one of the attractions of the film. And that's why the film is called like that. So it was the equivalent of the jet set flying on the Concorde 10 years ago or, two, you know, 30 years ago or whatever, right? Yeah. So it's the place, it's it's the train that movie stars would take from New York to L.A. And there was always, they always switched trains in Chicago. Right. Yeah. So, 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 and it was very famous. Was that like saying so you could be seen? No, it's not that. It's just that it was, it was very expensive. It was very luxurious. You know, and also it was so long that you had to switch trains in Chicago. So for the plot of this narrative, yeah. Jaffe is in Chicago. She's coming from L.A. You know, that's where they meet. Yeah, they end up getting together on the way to New York, right? And I forget what it was. It was like a three-day journey or a, something like that, right? So, yeah. Uh, so people had sleeping cars. And yeah. So and there's a whole talk of that in uh, 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 the the film. And so for an audience... That would have been a fantastic attraction to actually see the inside of, <laughs> you know, those places that movie stars traveled on, right? Kind of when they traveled, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, so it was like an early form of MTV Cribs. <laughs> a little bit like yeah, it was an attraction, right? Yeah. It was like, uh, you know, kind of movies in the nineteen fifties showing you Paris or whatever, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, it was. You know, one of the selling points of the film was that it was the 20th century. And it's something that, like, you know, was so famous that most people in America would probably have known the, what that train was, right? In a way that's inconceivable to us now. Like the Orient Express, I suppose. That's, yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. But the difference with the, with the Orient Express is that the 20th century was always associated with movie stars. Right, right. With glamour and, yeah, it was like kind of how the movie stars traveled. Whereas the Orient Express is associated with murder. And royalty. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad I've seen this, because, especially because Celia's been asking me to watch it for such a fucking long time, and now I can say that I have. Um, I, I can see sort of what the attractions are. I did think one or two things lacked for me, but in the... Just in the in in the dialogue, in the way that the dialogue is brought to life by the performance, I think there's nothing that there's no greater pleasure in this. You know that is that is its strength. Um, I I had a really good I time. I think any student of acting, you know, must really see John Barrymore. I think what he does here is completely extraordinary. It's kind of 
you know, a work of genius to be able to do these things. Uh, and then, of course, you can completely understand why from this moment on, Carol Lombard would become one of the greatest stars of American cinema. She's mm. luminous and beautiful and, you know, and striking. Actually, I th one of the things that I did think about this film, which I think about Hawks in general, actually, you know, I there, there's not... There are situations in Hawks that remain vividly memorable, right? You know, so the dinosaur falling and Cary Grant holding mm. Catherine Hepburn by the hand as she swings. Um, but there are very few images that I find memorable, yeah? Mm. Like, you know, so there isn't a shot or a camera move that you go, wow, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But actually, in this film, I think... Uh, Carol Lombard brings that all by herself, you know, mm. kind of, uh, uh, you know, just her in that gold lame dress is something I'll never forget, you know, and it really <laughs> kind of typifies a kind of a 30s glamour, you know, to me. It's not just beauty, though, Jose. She's also a good actress. She's good, though, you know, uh, uh, I've never been able to convince you to see to be or not to be the whole way through. But, it's not, you know, no, it's not that you've not been able to convince me to. We've just not agreed to. I'm, we can watch it tomorrow if you want. Okay. Well, I, we, we, we definitely should watch yeah, it. Because should. if you think she's good here, what she can do with a line for Lubitsch, you know, uh, six, seven years later is amazing. Yeah. I look forward to she it. She becomes like Barrymore. She, she gets laughs. You know, out of almost nothing, just by intonation, really. Yeah. So, uh, um, I think you're you know, right about I mean, her here she, in terms of performance. You know, she she is her her she is obviously a secondary character to Barrymore, and she is her performance is worse than his. So, worse is not a very good term. Not as good as his. Um, and she gets kind of less out of it, and she's a little bit screamy maybe sometimes. But um, she also has she she has a kind of presence and spirit that is wonderful. And stands yes. up against his entirely, you know. And then energy, and just the way that she throws herself at the role is actually fantastic and fearless and, you know, kind of... Uh, there's something very... Um, you warm to her just by her abandon, you know, by... Mm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I love her in this, but I do think just in terms of level of skill... She's not comparable at this point to Barrymore. No, you know, though I think she will become. Speaking of acting, right? I this is a complete non sequitur, but I watched this film, Spies in Disguise, the other day, which I've been talking about on Facebook because it's not a very good film, right? It's an animated movie from from recently, um, where Will Smith is a spy who turns into a pigeon, right? And that's <laughs> <laughs> and. It's a, it's a perfectly mediocre film. It's like it's animated by Sony or some, one of those smaller places that don't really have sort of iconic animation to their name like Pixar. But there are things that, that were really making me laugh and Will Smith's line readings, especially when he becomes the pigeon version of himself and he's not happy being a pigeon, are genuinely absolutely wonderful. What you say about actors giving themselves to a role... Honestly, yeah. you can do worse than than watch Will Smith or listen to his voice in Spies in Disguise yeah. because he is just magic. He gets the tone completely, and I think it's great. So, like, it's a weird yeah. sort of recommendation to put at the end of this, but Spies in Disguise is really good voice <laughs> acting. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I think this is a marvellous film. I think 
what is it now? It's almost 70, no. 1934, uh, so we're, f- it's, we're 14 years it's off its 100th anniversary, 86 years. It's 86 years old, and it still had me laughing throughout. I mean, that is amazing. Yeah. You know, uh, I think it's particularly harder for comedies, actually, you know, than it is for drama to, yeah. To I think you're right. To, comedy to comedy ages more badly. I mean, particularly yeah. topical comedy, which this isn't. Topical comedy tends to because because kind of social the kind of social things that it criticizes change dramatically in short periods yeah. of time. So this has a better chance of standing up, but still, it is tough for comedy to to keep doing that. Yeah. So so I think that in itself is a testament to the quality of the film. You know, that uh, eighty odd years later, here we are laughing at it. You know. Yeah. Uh, it it still succeeds. I think it's amazing. Sarcasm and kind of sarcastic asides and things like that never stop playing well. I think, and this film is full of those. And yes, it has like a a, a Preston Sturgis worked on it. I think. Um, it, yes, it, I think it, Preston Sturgis. He did a draft when it wasn't accepted. Same, but yeah. you know, he may have had like lines left in there, and there's there's something very Preston Sturgisy about the feel too. Well, I mean, to me, like you know, Hector MacArthur. Like you can see, I mean, Hecht was one of the great screenwriters of the period. Uh, he did Notorious for Hitchcock and so on. You know, he uh, he was the highest paid uh, screenwriter, I think, uh, of this period. And, you know, MacArthur, Hecht and MacArthur as a team are brilliant, really. So uh, if, if Sturgis added something to it as well, you know, there you have three of the greatest screenwriters of, of the period kind of working on this film. And it shows. Mm. Yeah. So recommended, I think. I don't think it's a revelation. I think this film is known, you know, and it's in like the AFI sort of. It's been canonized, I think. Um, yeah. But uh, we just hadn't seen but it. But for yet. a lot of people, I mean, you know, my God, I've been like a film critic for forty years practically, and I still hadn't seen it. Yeah. So I'm sure there's lots of people, you know, who 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 haven't, and and I suppose this is a nudge, you know, that that you should. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Good movie. <laughs> okay. So uh, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on. Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify and YouTube to listen to us. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much for listening. Cheerio. Cheerio.